Harvard Divinity School. The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, 21st Century Research and Perspectives, A Conversation with David Yaden and Michael Ferguson, November 3rd, 2022. My name is Charles Stang, and I have the privilege of serving as the Director of the Center for the Study of World Religion here at Harvard Divinity School. Welcome to this evening's event, part of the Center's Transcendence and Transformation Initiative, or TNT for short, which is now in its second year. TNT is devoted to the study of religious and spiritual traditions and practices, ancient and modern, global and reach, that aim for the transcendence of our normal states of being, consciousness, and embodiment, and the transformation of individual, community, and society. TNT affirms the existence of the sacred, different levels of reality, seen and unseen, and different modes of access to them. It investigates what might be called metaphysics and mysticism, by which we mean the traditions across time, people, and place that have cultivated practices of transcendence and transformation and have articulated worldviews to make sense of those practices. The Center's next event is a poetry reading and talk with Peter Gizzi on Wednesday, November 9th at 12 p.m. That will also be a Zoom webinar and we'll put the link to register in the chat function. As always, the best way to stay abreast of what we're doing at the Center and all our programming is to sign up for our weekly newsletter. So this evening, we are here to celebrate and investigate a new book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, 21st Century Research and Perspectives, co-authored by David Yaden and Andrew Newberg. We have the pleasure of having David with us this evening, along with our very own Michael Ferguson, a research associate in the TNT Initiative. I will leave it to Michael to introduce David and say a few words about the book, but it is my pleasure first to introduce Michael. Michael is an instructor in neurology at Harvard Medical School and the Neurospirituality Research Director for the Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is a lecturer on neurospirituality at Harvard Divinity School, instructs a cognitive neuroscience of meditation semester course at Harvard College, and leads graduate directed readings in mysticism and neuroscience. Michael earned his doctorate in bioengineering from the University of Utah, where he conducted brain imaging research on ecstatic religious experience. He's also trained as a postdoctoral fellow uh, at Cornell University and Harvard Medical School before joining the faculty at Harvard. Michael is deeply interested in multidisciplinary work spanning science, medicine, and mysticism and he's ideally suited to serve as a respondent to David's new book. So this is how the evening will unfold. I will soon disappear and Michael will appear and introduce David and briefly the book. Then David will take the stage as it were and make his own introductory comments on the book whereupon Michael will return to give a proper response and the two of them will then enter into conversation. So without further ado, Michael, the floor is yours. Thank you for that generous introduction, Charlie. It's an honor and a pleasure to introduce to you all tonight the star of our event, William James. William James, as many of our online event participants know, is a giant among 20th century philosophers and psychologists. And we celebrate James's contributions to the study of religion and spirituality in this event tonight. But lest you think I am either ill-mannered or absent-minded, 
allow me to state frankly and directly that William James is the star of our event tonight only because I see in Dr. David Yaden so much of what made William James a great man. Dr. Yaden, like James, intuitively grasps the value, the impact, and the urgency in attending closely to a set of human experience that has shaped both individual lives and the trajectories of entire societies, namely the varieties of spiritual experience. Like James, Dr. Yaden is fiercely committed to a brave scientific methodology that prioritizes empirical observation while simultaneously respecting and even savoring the qualities of religious, spiritual, and mystical events that routinely defy ordinary language and thought. Dr. Yaden has a remarkably illustrious combination of academic training and scientific publishing that justifies identifying him as a leading world expert in the science of spirituality. He is currently an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where he leads a multidisciplinary research team to investigate varieties of non-ordinary consciousness experiences associated with a wide span of behavioral triggers, ranging from personal prayer to clinical psychedelic therapy. Dr. David Yaden's newly published book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, is co-authored by Dr. Andrew Newberg. It speaks critically to a need in the current scientific landscape, which is increasingly apparent from multiple evidence-based perspectives. We can see from medical and clinical points of view that human spirituality has a scientifically significant association with acute and long-term life outcomes. There is increasing interest within the academy to identify and characterize the nature of human spirituality, and yet finding satisfactory entry points for scientifically engaging with spiritual experience is a notoriously difficult challenge for combinations of reasons that are historical, social, technical, political, and even intrinsic to the topic itself. Dr. Yaden's book begins by describing for the reader some of the general problems associated with a scientific approach to spiritual experience before moving skillfully and charmingly into a historical introduction of William James himself. I found myself blissfully caught up on numerous occasions by Dr. Yaden's narrative voicing of James's family history, including episodic descriptions of family dinners and salons with guests that represent a veritable who's who of New England intellectual society. William James figures into the entirety of the text, acting as something of a Virgil to Yaden's Dante and leading us through an ascending series of epiphanies and realizations that were not only informative, but legitimately inspiring to me. The book is particularly enriched by the tour de force Dr. Yaden provides of previously published scientific studies on spiritual experience and their outcomes. However, I found myself uh, admiring that the crowning gems of Yaden's varieties of spiritual experience were the voluminous findings from Yaden's and Newberg's own original data, 
which they collected specifically for this book and report in an impressively accessible manner. Readers will likely be intrigued by the author's findings about spiritual experience triggers, triggers which the authors derive not from anecdotal or personal reflection alone, but from doing the hard work of gathering firsthand data from mixed methods of qualitative and quantitative assessments. Yadin's Varieties proceeds to describe an evidence-based typology for spiritual experiences, which is sure to be generative of theoretical and practical understanding for expert and non-expert readers alike. Additional highlights from Yadin's Varieties include his lucid digest of the scientific and philosophical problems of consciousness and a titillating series of reports from the front lines of psychedelic science, which Dr. Yadin has been deeply involved in, conducting and reporting a dazzling litany of peer-reviewed articles. Yadin's writing strikes a vital balance of intellection without condescension, repeatedly bringing clarity and congeniality to matters of great conceptual complexity. Lastly, I'll note that Dr. Yadin, much like William James, teases the reader throughout the book by withholding both his and James's own personal beliefs about an ultimate philosophy of spirituality and maintaining a professional agnosticism that is radically open and admirably humble. I'll leave it to Dr. Yadin to decide whether he would like to depart from that prolonged tease this evening by revealing to us either him's or his or James's personal beliefs. In summary, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience is an essential book at a critical moment in the history of science, and one which I will and already have recommended to students and colleagues as a must read for anyone who is serious about unifying the analytic and the transcendent dimensions of human experience. With that, I am delighted to welcome Dr. David Yaden to the virtual stage. Thank you, Michael. That was uh, bar none, the best introduction that I have ever received in my life. Uh, Thank you for that, really from the bottom of my heart. I will attempt to to live up to to some of that now. I also wanted to thank uh, Charlie and Kama and uh, the the Center for the Study of World Religions and TNT and uh, for all of you listening in. I'm delighted to be here. Harvard is a a very special place in the story of William James, Uh, taught physiology there, started the first psychology lab in North America there, and taught philosophy there. So uh, let's start with uh, James and get into his classic book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Um, After that, uh, after establishing some of the foundations, uh, we can move into some of the scientific findings across psychology and neuroscience and psychopharmacology, especially psychedelics. And as Michael alluded to, I'll uh, maintain a a kind of agnosticism uh, for as long as I can, uh, but beliefs ultimately, inevitably come back into the picture. Uh, and so I'll, I'll conclude with uh, William James's professional conclusion, as well as his personal conclusion, and I'll give some of my reflections uh, as well. 
But before we even get into uh, William James, I, I think it's worth pausing just a moment to consider where we are now. Uh, so when I first began my own interest in the, in researching the varieties of spiritual experience, uh, started from my own uh, spontaneous uh, altered state of consciousness or spiritual experience. We'll get into these definitions that occurred uh, lying on my dorm room bed as an undergrad and uh, led me to William James's Varieties of Religious Experience, which helped me to understand and, and normalize the experience. This kicked off uh, many, many years of reading and comparative religion, neuroscience, and, and psychology, uh, ultimately. Uh, and when I started my PhD work uh, in psychology, I have to say this topic was extremely unusual raised a number of eyebrows and was seen as pretty fringe, to be frank. I think that has shifted dramatically. So just today there was yet another publication in the New England Journal of Medicine on psychedelic substances. Uh, and uh, psychedelics are now really in front and center in mainstream psychiatric and psychological uh, and even just social discourse. And at the heart of psychedelic treatments is this very interesting altered state of consciousness uh, that William James actually has, has much to teach us about. Uh, and I think much to guide us on in terms of his insights of how we ought to study uh, altered states of consciousness in general. Uh, so we've gone from a topic that has even in, in during the course of my career, gone from quite fringe uh, to quite central. And I think there are a, a number of other reasons, probably more important than just the, the centrality of, of this topic in the discourse, uh, for considering uh, the history and, and the current state of the art in studying these deeply profound inner experiences. Um, what I'd like to do is start with the experiential. Uh, so I'll, I'll just ask everyone to, to take a nice deep breath in and close your eyes. And as you breathe out, just call to mind a memory of an experience that you've had where there was maybe nothing in particular going on externally. This is an experience that occur occurred almost entirely inwardly. Maybe an experience that was uh, intense, unusual, meaningful, maybe difficult, challenging, maybe quite positive. But I think we can bring to mind the kind of experience that one might mean when they refer to a spiritual experience. So see if you can just find the closest thing for you that seems to you to match that description. Just remember what caused it, what you were thinking, feeling, visuals or voices, any insights that came, 
and how you felt afterwards. And so just bring this memory to mind. And as you do, you can take a nice deep breath in. And as you breathe out, you can open your eyes back to the room. Okay. So I think it's worth connecting uh, inwardly to this um these memories which are often extremely profound uh, as as i'll mention okay i'm not sure if there's a chat function here um if there is i'll ask you to use it if if there's not i'll ask you to write it down uh the, the answer to this question so we need to get to some basic definitions before we really dive into James and the varieties and, and the state of the science. Uh, so what is a spiritual experience anyway? Um, interestingly, Gallup and the General Social Survey, very large scale uh, polling companies uh, have for many decades and really every once every few years in the US and the UK asked people whether they've had a religious or spiritual or mystical type experience. The labels uh, are many, um, and the, the wording does change, uh, but the affirmative response rate remains relatively stable over time. And so uh, let me see, a few, a few of these questions are worded like, uh, have you had a religious or mystical experience that changed the direction of your life? Or have you felt close to a spiritual force that seemed to lift you out of yourself? Uh, or maybe simply, have you had what you consider to be a profound spiritual experience? So the question that I'll pose to, to you all, the audience, is to guess what percentage of the population in, say, the U.S. Uh, will agree completely to one of these statements. So just for the sake of simplicity, imagine the question is, uh, have you ever had a profound spiritual experience? Okay. Uh, and imagine there's a scale from uh, one to 10, and we're interested in the tens, the people who say, yes, I completely agree. I definitely had a profound spiritual experience. So if there is a chat function, I'd ask you to just uh, put in your guess of how many, what percentage of the population would completely agree to that statement. Okay, wonderful. Oh, and I see the chat function does work, which is great. Okay, excellent. So I'm seeing a few responses already, and actually more are, are piling in. Actually, I wish I was recording these. Uh, maybe I could write a script at some point to record these and actually compute an average, because I wonder if we'd actually get pretty close to the real national average. Um, but instead of computing an average, I'm just going to take a quick skim and give you the range that I'm seeing. And what I see is 1% as the lower bound, and I'm seeing 85% as the higher bound. Now, that's amazing. Uh, so thank you all for those who participated. Thank you for, for throwing in your guesses. Um, uh, if, if this was in person, I'd, I'd give the winner a book. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah. anyway, one, one, in 80, one to 85 percent is the range. Now, this is amazing because this is, this is great. This is a huge amount of uncertainty that we have. And this is a self-selected audience. You know, we're all pretty interested in this topic, uh, probably, more or less. Otherwise, why would we be here? 
so a relatively interested audience, there's this range of one to 85%. That's, that's great uh, because psychology um, often doesn't give us the kinds of uh, answers that we want, right? You know, there are other sciences that provide these really definitive answers um, and, uh, and we have some assurance on those. Whereas psychology, sometimes it, it uh, raises more questions than answers or the, or the answers are uh, somewhat difficult to interpret. But, but in any case, in this, in this case, there really is an actual answer. Um, and the, the actual answer, uh, and, and remember, the reason why I ask you to register your guess uh, is because with psychology, as soon as I tell you the answer, uh, what usually happens is confirmation bias. So you think, oh, well, that's completely obvious. I knew that all along. So, so that's why I'm so appreciative that you threw your guesses out there. Um, so we have the range of one to 85%. The answer uh, is in fact about 35%. So over the decades across uh, at least a couple countries with questions that are worded in different ways, the 35% figure is one that's pretty reliable uh, and one that's uh, frequently cited uh, as a, a kind of basic understanding of, of prevalence. So that's really interesting, I think. Um, now, what's going on here is there's a lot of uh, weight placed on these particular um, words that are that are used in this case and what seems to be um, meant. Oh, and, and whoever got, if anyone actually got 35% in particular, uh, do, do email me because <laughs> I will send a book if anyone got 35%. Um, so there's been some good qualitative studies digging into these affirmative responses and, and trying to get a sense for what people really mean when they say, Yes. Um, and there's a there's a spectrum here. So some people uh, mean things like, well, I have faith. I, I, I believe in um, uh, certain religious views and they're very those are very meaningful to me um, and they're they're emotionally evocative. OK, and this is. A, a certain so that so that's one thing so this is what we'd call a very belief heavy uh, affirmative response uh, sometimes people respond with intensely altered states of consciousness that sound almost uh, like a like a fever dream just a state of confusion and and it's not even really um, felt to be meaningful um, which a spiritual experience doesn't necessarily need to, but it's more just this kind of um, state of, of confusion. So there's there's a variety of different responses, basically, uh, and and people in the colloquial sense of the term are willing to say this is a spiritual experience. Uh, and it's important, I think, to understand what people mean when they use that phrase. Uh, but I'm going to offer a little bit of a more precise definition. Uh, which is that a spiritual experience for our rough purposes uh, is uh, an intensely altered state of consciousness uh, involving shifts in cognition, affect, and perception uh, in which one feels as if they uh, perceive an unseen reality of some kind. Uh, 
Okay, so there's two major portions of this definition. One is this intensely altered state. Um, so these are these 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 shifts in how you in how you feel uh, and perceive reality in a fundamental way. So our cognitions change, our perception, our feelings. There's this overall gestalt sort of shift. Um, but then it's paired with this perception, a seeming perception of an unseen reality of some kind. This is a, a phrase that comes from James, and this unseen reality uh, could involve any number of things. Uh, it's often a, a kind of perception of what seems to be this, a sort of essence of existence. This might be a divinity. This could be uh, unity. This could be beauty. This could be entropy. <laughs> uh, so there's this idea that, that, that one has uh, perceived something about the nature of reality uh, in some way though they can doubt this this perception is real. I'll say more about that in a second. So what does this mean? This means that if someone uh, were to say, uh, well, I had I, you know, I had a fever and I was really confused about what was going on, I would say, well, that sounds like an intensely altered state of consciousness, but maybe doesn't involve this perception of an unseen order. Whereas another person might say, well, you know, I truly believe in, uh, God. And, um, you know, I just feel that belief strongly. You know, one might say, well, okay, so it seems like you have a sense of belief about what the an unseen order of reality is. But it doesn't sound like you had an intensely altered state of consciousness. So that really, I think the combination of these two things is what uh, constitutes uh, spiritual experience for our purpose. Um, why did we use the term spiritual? Why did why did James use the word religious? Uh, James has a whole discussion of this, and he says, you know, I'm choosing to use the word religious. That later, he, he talks about mystical experiences. He says, you can use whatever label you want. Um, he actually said you could even say experiences that come from the B region of the mind rather than the A region. Um, he used these terms because people seem to understand what he meant when he, he used them. That's basically why we also use the word spiritual. We shifted from religious to spiritual for two reasons. One is scholars have said that James had such a broad um, view of, of spiritual experience or, or his topic of these religious or mystical experiences that um, that spiritual is just the, the contemporary word that fits that broad set best. So you know, we agreed and we, we uh, took the lead from these scholars. But we also asked people, we gathered data and we said, okay, you know, we described the basic type of experience we're, we're interested in. And we say, what do you call this? Uh, and we got a long list of, of uh, options and spiritual was the most common. And so people seem to use this, this term most frequently. And so that's, that's why we used it and uh, provided you with uh, a very sort of uh, rough uh, definition there of, of what's meant by a spiritual type experience. So another, another pause to just contemplate where we are currently before we, before we go back to James, um, to talk about James, remember that <laughs> we'll get, we'll get to James. Um, basically, um, these, these experiences, um, 
uh, are can be uh, qu quite dramatic uh, and in, can induce uh, a pretty substantial uh, shift shift in, in terms, terms of, of well-being uh, and meaning. So these experiences appear to often be non-trivial uh, for those who have them. Um, they may only last a few moments. Um, actually, the average is 20 minutes that this altered state of consciousness lasts. Um, and yet most people report feeling impacted for years uh, or even decades. So there's there's something deeply meaningful and important about these uh, these experiences, which we we call spiritual. Um, but just because we're using the term spiritual, and just because it, the definition includes this perception of an unseen reality, that doesn't mean uh, that only people who have religious or spiritual beliefs have these experiences. Uh, so there are actually a number, a, a wide range of interpretations uh, that, that one can have of these experiences. Um, and those are probably represented by many uh, on this call. When you when you when you brought to mind your own experience, uh, you very likely have a, a very specific interpretation of that experience, or a, a belief or an attribution associated with it. Uh, but what I think is very interesting is when you when you look across religions, uh, you, you you don't tend to see the same experiences across religions and but you do see experiences that can be judged to be similar i think um, but these occur in all religious traditions uh, these occur in uh, individuals who consider themselves spiritual but not religious who have a a, a belief involving a non-physical mind of some kind uh, either that their own mind is, is separate from their body in some way like a soul or that there's some larger mind uh, in or beyond the physical universe, uh, like a god or all-pervading consciousness. Uh, these spiritual uh, beliefs tend to be more abstract than, than religious ones, which are more specific. And uh, agnostics and atheists also have uh, these experiences. Um, Barbara Ehrenreich, who just passed away, wrote a book called Living with a Wild God, in which she described her own experiences, which she called spiritual experiences, and which she uh, described as uh, involving the perception of, of uh, a kind of a non-physical mind in the surrounding environment, uh, but she chose to interpret them in a mostly atheistic sort of way. Uh, Sam Harris is someone who has these experiences, yet is an uh, outspoken uh, atheist. Bertrand Russell uh, is another uh, you know, maybe the most well-known atheist uh, of all time, had what he considered to be a mystical uh, experience. Uh, he wrote an essay about it um, called Mysticism and Logic. And he said in his autobiography that the experience uh, no doubt involved delusional elements, and yet the feeling tone of it stayed with him throughout the entire rest of his life. Uh, so he felt as if this experience was responsible for some of his um, pacifism, uh, activism around pacifism, as well as uh, the, the emotional tone he took with loved ones, which he felt he became a, a warmer and more loving person. 
Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the overall prevalence of these spiritual experiences. We've talked about how meaningful uh, and, and positive they can sometimes be, although not always, and sometimes they have, in fact, negative outcomes. Uh, we've, we've also talked about uh, a sort of rough definition, uh, why we chose the word spiritual, and that people of all uh, beliefs and non-belief systems, as it were, uh, can and do have these experiences. Okay. So let's let's get back to uh, to James. Uh, so sometimes I know that not for this audience and not for this venue, uh, these William James is, is I think pretty widely known here. But a lot of times I get I have this worry uh, or I get this sense that people think I picked a sort of obscure uh, thinker to focus so much on, uh, you know. And so it's like. Uh, you know, one of those memes where it's like, why are you obsessed with me? <laughs> if William James were to uh, to make a meme, which is a, a funny image. But so why why care about William James? It's a fair question. Um, and I, what I want to say is that William James is not at all uh, really obscure in terms of his, his impact on contemporary science and scholarship. Uh, so Bertrand Russell said William James was the world's most famous academic uh, when he passed away. Uh, James was the president of the American Psychological Association uh, and the American Philosophical Association. He was trained as a medical doctor, uh, taught physiology, as I mentioned. Uh, and he was a foundational influence on uh, the study of religion to, some, to some somewhat small extent who was in a very important influence in psychiatry and in the definition of a mental disorder uh, in which uh, one has to look to the outcomes of that mental disorder if it causes suffering and dysfunction uh, this is and this outcome focus uh, comes explicitly from william james uh, adolf meyer who's the founder of modern psychiatry explicitly acknowledges uh, james for this um uh, in philosophy, the view of pragmatism was largely popularized by William James, uh, and I've already mentioned a bit of his influence in psychology, but but also he wrote the, the foundational textbook for the field of psychology, which was read by every psych student for many decades. Um, and so he really had an, an, ex, an a really extraordinary career himself. He was also raised in an extraordinary family. It's kind of like the... Um, like a, a century or so ago version of the Royal Tannenbaums. I mean, this was a family of genius. Uh, there was Henry James, uh, who's actually remains more uh, famous than uh, even William James uh, for his novels. Alice James uh, was a famous feminist diarist. Uh, and, the, and their father, Henry James Sr., uh, was also very well known amongst uh, intellectuals at the time, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Faraday, uh, uh, Henry David Thoreau, and Emerson would come over for dinner. In fact, there was even an Emerson room in the James household that Emerson would stay in whenever he visited uh, New York. So with a childhood like this, uh, you can imagine uh, that the, this topic of spiritual experience wasn't completely uh, alien uh, to him. But, you know, James was interested in all of mental life, and that's everything from visual perception to emotions to imagination 
to language, uh, to even psychic type phenomena, which he investigated. Uh, he often found himself in the role of a debunker uh, in, in those investigations. Uh, but this idea of studying these in, these intensely altered states of consciousness, these religious experiences, personal religious experiences, as he called them, or conversions, or mystical experience, um, you know, this was a, a kind of an, an obvious final step for him to take, I think, and, and this was one of the last uh, topics in psychology that he really focused on. Uh, so... James himself had a number of experiences, even though he said, I'm, uh, I haven't had a full-blown mystical experience. There was a number of experiences that he described that seemed to come close. He also tried mescaline at one point. Uh, the, um, it appeared not to be a, an active dose. The history of psychedelic research would have started much earlier if it had, um, but he did use nitrous oxide and described it uh, as a, a kind of revelatory or mystical state. Uh, and even though it had a um, psychoactive, uh, even though it was a substance that caused the state, he still saw real meaning and value in it. Um, so so he, he wrote the varieties towards the end of his life. And the varieties has ended up being maybe his, his strongest legacy. It's been in print continuously since he wrote it. Uh, which might be a record uh, in in psychology, and it's it's sort of cemented itself into the Western canon. It's a it's a real classic, uh, and for very good reason. And not only is it beautifully written. I mean, one of our main aims of our book is to get people to go back and read uh, James's varieties. Um, but he also does something really important, which is he pays very careful attention to what people are actually saying about these experiences. So he includes hundreds of uh, personal accounts of these experiences throughout the book, almost as if he's gathering specimens, uh, does he include these personal uh, descriptions. So he cares very much about getting into the actual uh, subjective understanding uh, and subjective feelings that people are bringing into uh, these experiences. James also does something unusual for the time, which is he says, I'm a psychologist. This is a new thing to be at that point. But he says, as a psychologist, I'm, I'm not going to be a philosopher or a theologian here. And so I'm going to set aside uh, these larger claims about the metaphysical dimension uh, or, or maybe lack thereof of these experiences. So he says, I'm not going to, to wade into this issue of are these experiences revealing something true about reality uh, or not? Uh, I'm going to set that aside to the ex to the extent that he can. Uh, I remember, uh, Michael mentioned this, and I mentioned that we'll get to beliefs uh, sort of at the end. But James really does set aside uh, beliefs about these experiences as much as possible uh, in until the end. Is is really interested instead in looking at what we can understand about these experiences scientifically and what can we understand about them? Well, we can look at what triggers them. We can look at what happens in the brain and the body during them. We can ask people how they feel during them uh, and maybe divide them into different types. And we can also look at the consequences of these experiences, how they impact people's actual lives. 
Uh, and this is exactly what James does uh, throughout this book. Uh, so he's sensitive to the subjective and the, the phenomenal, the phenomenology essentially of the investigation. He sets aside what he considers largely unfalsifiable uh, theological questions and so adopts this kind of methodological agnosticism and pays attention carefully to um, what we can study scientifically. And in fact, some of his students were at that time uh, surveying people and providing data about these experiences. So this is uh, an approach which I find extremely admirable uh, because of its sensitivity to people's actual experience, because of its scientific rigor of actually looking at uh, the evidence, and because of its philosophical sensibleness. <laughs> like, as a psychologist, as a scientist, setting these uh, questions aside about the ultimate nature of these experiences, I think uh, is refreshing in its humility. And I'll contrast that uh, approach uh, against two much more well-known psychologists in the study of spiritual experience. So the first is Freud. So, so well after uh, James published the varieties, uh, Freud ended up speculating on these experiences. Um, uh, Romain Roland, uh, who's a, a writer um, and brought, did a lot to, to bring uh, study of, of Buddhism and Hinduism uh, into Europe. Uh, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha is um, dedicated to, to this person. He, he wrote to, to Freud saying, well, maybe I agree with your views about religious beliefs, but what about these experiences, these oceanic feelings of oneness? And what Freud said is in the, in the um, intro, first chapter of Civilization and Its Discontents, is he says, these uh, experiences sound weird. <laughs> Essentially, these fit so badly in our conception of uh, human psychology, according to him, uh, that they must have a psychoanalytic explanation. That's, and that's to say that he felt that they must be symptomatic of mental illness, essentially. Um, he even offered a kind of half-baked explanation for what these experiences might be, which is memories of being in one's mother's womb coming to the surface uh, after being repressed. So this strikes most contemporary psychologists and neuroscientists as, as very silly uh, and, and impossible. Uh, and Freud really had a very pathologizing perspective towards these experiences. Again, no data. Uh, this is just him speculating. Uh, um, and I find that very unfortunate, right? Uh, so where William James was sensitive and interested in people's subjective experience, Freud was only interested in his own uh, speculations where James went out and looked at data, uh, Freud did no such thing, uh, and where James has a, a sort of balanced view that these experiences often but not always result uh, in positive effects, Freud just assumed that they were, that they were uh, completely um, related to, to mental illness uh, or psychopathological. The other very well-known psychologist who talked a lot about spiritual experience was Carl Jung, uh, Jung did indeed have uh, these kinds of experiences and did talk to people about them. Um, but he was so uh, enthusiastic about the potential of these experiences that he 
ultimately brought them into the center. He called them numinous experiences, brought them into the center of his whole system of therapy uh, and, and treated them as a kind of uh, pathway to, to true mental health. Uh, so this is in some ways the opposite of the Freudian perspective in terms of uh, mental health, where Freud thought it was symptom of mental illness. Freud, uh, where Freud thought it was symptom of mental illness, Jung thought it was important for mental health or essential even. Um, these are quite opposite views, whereas William James is more uh, mixed and looking to actual data and the outcomes. Uh, but Freud and Jung are similar uh, insofar as they have very, very confident, boldly stated kind of extreme views uh, of these experiences. Uh, and they, in my view, uh, wholly lack James's kind of intellectual humility uh, and ability to uh, think in a nuanced and, and more balanced and evidence-based manner. Um, so uh, over the years, uh, there's been a number of movements in psychology, including psychoanalysis, uh, but also behaviorism for a number of years where um, the methods were such that uh, spiritual experiences were, were passed over in silence, so to speak. And it's only the past few decades where post-cognitive revolution uh, and, and after some advances in psychometrics that now uh, psychologists can routinely measure uh, spiritual type experiences at very large scales, like those Gallup polls that I mentioned, uh, but also in more carefully controlled studies. So psychology has come a long way in the measurement and understanding of spiritual experiences. And what does the psychological data say? Uh, well, it's actually vindicating James in a lot of ways, which is that most, uh, but but certainly not all, people tend to benefit at least a little bit from what from their self-reported spiritual experience, and some people benefit tremendously. On the other side of the spectrum, some people uh, have experiences that are related to mental illness, and some people have uh, experiences for which they require psychotherapeutic uh, support in order to integrate. So James's uh, nuanced perspective has been really vindicated in the data, whereas uh, Freud's wholly negative and, and Jung's wholly uh, enthusiastic assessments uh, have, have not held up uh, nearly so well. Uh, James couldn't have imagined the advances in neuroimaging that have occurred over the past few decades. Uh, so uh, our, uh, Michael Ferguson uh, does brilliant work in this. My co-author, Andy Newberg, who's a radiologist, uh, has done pioneering work in this area, the neuroscience of spiritual experiences uh, over the years, uh, what, what Michael now calls neurospirituality. Um, but also, as I mentioned in the beginning, psychopharmacology has come a long way. So during my doctoral work, I, I did many of these uh, survey studies, retrospective survey studies, asking people to report about their spiritual experiences. Um, but I also tried to do uh, some uh, controlled studies where I was where I would uh, induce a spiritual experience in the lab. And these basically all failed uh, entirely. So I tried non-invasive brain stimulation. Uh, didn't really work. Virtual reality, 
awe-inspiring stimuli uh, like videos, meditation. None of these things reliably induced uh, anything close to the kind of intensely altered state of consciousness that I was interested in. Um, it, these investigations did provide some findings of interest. Uh, for example, the whole uh, middle of the, the book, the new book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, is divided into different types uh, of experience, which we derive from a, a data-driven approach called factor analysis. Um, so we find that we can distinguish between types of experience. Uh, for example, uh, numinous or God experiences where people feel the, the presence of God around them, uh, unity experiences, or deep feelings of, of connectedness, uh, revelatory experiences where you receive voices uh, or visions or epiphanies, uh, synchronicity experiences where seemingly coincidental events um, feel like as if they have a deeper uh, personal meaning. Um, aesthetic experiences. This is the experience that all of us have had, feeling goosebumps and thoughts stop and jaw drop from art or nature. Uh, and as paranormal experiences, uh, so non-physical entities of some kind, uh, which are actually extremely common and was a surprise to us because we didn't go looking for people to report these experiences. Um, but especially in the context of grief are fairly normative. Um, you know, and speaking of which, uh, we, we want to normalize these experiences. I mentioned the prevalence at the beginning um, and despite this prevalence, 40% of people still don't uh, mention having one of these experiences to even their close friends and family. 40% uh, of people apparently have never told another soul about their spiritual experience, uh, regardless of which type it is, um, because of this concern, which I think is somewhat of a holdover from Freud, uh, that, that they'll be um, considered to have a mental illness. Uh, so, so let me wrap up here with just getting back to this issue of, of inducing these experiences in controlled laboratory settings. As Michael mentioned, I now uh, work in a psychedelic center at Johns Hopkins, and these um, psychedelic experiences that we induce often for therapeutic purposes or to, to examine uh, their impact on well-being uh, there's there's somewhat of a similar dynamic uh, to the overall picture of these uh, spiritual experiences that James discussed and that the psychology research finds, which is that they're positively transformative for some, uh, that they benefit many a bit, they have no effect for some, and for a few, they're, they're actually adverse. So there's, there's a similar kind of uh, breakdown. Um, but What's so interesting, I think, about the psychedelic research uh, is that according to a lot of self-report measures, the naturally occurring, quote unquote, naturally occurring uh, spiritual experiences from things like prayer or meditation or solitude in nature uh, seem subjectively quite similar uh, to many of the psychedelic experiences that we're able to induce. Um, and and again, I think this is one of the most interesting findings in all of uh, psychology from the past two decades, but uh, very reliably in these psychedelic studies, uh, two thirds of the sample who receive the psychedelic, like for example, psilocybin, 
report that the experience was one of the most meaningful of their entire lives. Uh, and many of these people are benefiting uh, from these experiences in a, in a persisting way. And so when we look at uh, the context of sort of global mental health pandemic and the lack of innovation uh, in psychiatric treatments uh, for, for mood disorders in the past 30 or, or more years, uh, it, there's, there's good reason to be excited uh, about the psychedelic research um, with, with the massive caveat that uh, much more research needs to be done in order to really understand the efficacy, the risks, uh, and the benefits there. Um, but I think regardless of the overall impact for therapeutic reasons and for well-being reasons, um, what we have with psychedelics is a, a laboratory probe to help us understand these often profoundly meaningful and deeply interesting uh, spiritual experiences. Uh, and so I think William James would have been absolutely delighted uh, to see uh, that the research on this topic has continued and that we've advanced in our psychological, neurological, and pharmacological tools uh, to study these experiences. Um, but we still need input from scholars, which is absolutely essential. And I think it's important that we not forget our past uh, and that we look to William James uh, for some of these foundational insights in, in how we approach and study and seek to understand not only psychedelic experiences, but spiritual experience in general. Uh, so I'll, I'll pause there. Uh, and let Michael uh, come back into the mix so we can start chatting about some of these topics. Bravo, David. This is just such a joy to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for sharing your reflections here. I'd like to maybe start with a little bit of personal reflection from you before moving on to a couple of technical discussion points. Then lastly, go into a bit of a theoretical conversation before opening it up to Q&A from a virtual audience. On the personal side of things, you mentioned that you had your own, what you could categorize as spiritual experience at a formative period. And I'm wondering if, to the degree that you feel comfortable, you know, elaborating a little bit more about the set and setting, if you will, for that experience and how it impacted you. Yeah, so this experience came on entirely spontaneously. Uh, no, no substances involved whatsoever. Uh, it, it, Which wasn't my question, but no, okay. <laughs> no I know, I know. Just, uh, just setting the stage. Um, it was though during what I would consider a transitional period of life, uh, which is in fact a trigger that we identify uh, that people frequently endorse uh, as as encouraging these experiences to occur. So this was, as I said, undergrad lying on my dorm room bed, contemplating myself, my future, uh, feeling some adolescent angst, I think, and some confusion about what, you know, what the future really held for me, uh, and anxiety, I think, about that. Um, I remember uh, having the feeling or even thinking to myself at some point, uh, you know, this phrase, come what may. You know, it's, it's, it's like, okay, thought enough about this, I'm anxious enough, but I, you know, it's this kind of surrender to, to my future, at which point I experienced a kind of a heat in my chest, 
this heat grew. It initially, I, I thought it was indigestion or, or something, something very physical. Uh, eventually, this heat came over my whole body, uh, at which point a voice in my mind said, this is love. Uh, at that point, I went into my mind or, or I, I became unaware of my body or my surroundings and saw 360 degree boundless horizon stretching out in every direction and this kind of intricate fabric, uh, which I felt totally part of, indistinguishable from. And after what was probably just a few minutes, but felt like days, weeks, uh, months, I opened my eyes this this uh, heat or feeling of love had reached the boiling point uh, as if I couldn't take any more. Open my eyes, my body is laughing and crying at the same time. Very unusual uh, sort of emotional release for me. And everything seemed new. The future seemed open. Uh, I felt an outpouring of love, you know, the classic thing. I wanted to call friends and family and just tell them, you know, I love you. And, and I, I did do that, in fact. Um, but most of all, uh, I was wondering, you know, what the fuck just happened to me? What, you know, <laughs> what was that? And that kicked off a, a rather obsessive um, decade of, of reading and, and, and seeking to understand. And, and thankfully, one of the early books I happened upon was William James's Varieties of Religious Experience, because it, for me, normalized my experience. I thought, okay, people are having this, people have had this, many people have had this experience, and in fact, many benefited from it. Uh, and so part of my whole mission with all of this, with this book, is to pass that on, uh, to pay it forward, and to help normalize these experiences uh, for people who are having them and, and maybe confused by them. Well, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm really curious as well, David, the degree to which your research has shaped or infused into your own ongoing relationship with spiritual experience or your own attributional narrative to past spiritual experience. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, so I would say at the point of having my experience, uh, I was right beforehand, uh, moments beforehand, I was uh, an atheist. I had been raised uh, religious, but I was an atheist at that point. Uh, after my experience, I became uh, really a, a believer uh, in uh, supernaturalism and was you know, very interested in religious traditions and spiritual, spiritual traditions. Um, and and that, that, you know, that lasted for a little while. Um, I would say my diving into philosophy, though, um, sort of brought me back uh, and brought me, you know, because I, I was thinking, well, seeing is believing. You know, I just I saw this different dimension to reality. Uh, you know, it's it seemed as if this really was something beyond the physical world. Uh, and what I think philosophy taught me is is to be more self-critical and more humble um, about what I what conclusions I can draw from my own experience. And so I started to be more skeptical of myself. <laughs> and so that brought me uh, to a, a place of agnosticism. Uh, and so in terms of questions about the nature of consciousness, for example, uh, I, I consider myself uh, an agnostic, technically. Hmm. And it's, it's really interesting to me, 
that if you read particularly mystical theological literature, there is a way in which agnosticism has a particular orthodoxy to it. Mm. Uh, there's, there's a sense within more mystical expressions of traditional religious faith systems that the totality of being and the source of existence is so far beyond what a finite human mind can comprehend and conceptually articulate that that type of openness that type of humility that typifies the agnostic posture you're describing is in a way an orthodox posture to assume as opposed to some kind of you know subversive posture to assume that's interesting i, I hadn't thought about that I, i'd like to talk more about that and learn more i i did i did want to um get to William James's conclusion on this point, because I actually forgot <laughs> to end on this, and, and you teased okay. it. I'll take can we, quickly. Can I be so um, bold as to pump the brakes just a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah sure. We'll uh, keep people with uh, a suspense here before we get to the big reveal, um, because I actually want to ask some questions about that. Uh, but if I may, I want to, again, unpack a little bit of a technical set of questions first. Um, one of them is about the typology that you present in the book, because you have this very elegant, parsimonious categorization of God experiences, unitive experiences, and ghost type experiences. And I want to, you know, just make sure I'm understanding correctly that this typology you came to from evidence-based approaches. Uh, and the reason why I, I just want to make sure that I'm reading that correctly is because it was striking to me how cleanly your proposed typology aligns with categorizations that are explicitly from theological sources. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, in the third part of the book, we say that the typology, our typology doesn't work. Ultimately, uh, it fails. Um, but but that's interesting to know that, that it matches with with theological understandings. I, I didn't know that. I mean, basically, the structure of this is we asked people, have you had a spiritual experience? If so, describe it in writing and then answer these like 200 different questions about the experience. And then we applied factor analysis, which essentially allows us to cluster different kinds of responses. Uh, so the the answers having to do with God clustered with those having to do with divinity and this feeling of of presence around one and those and other clusters were like feelings of connectedness unity um, you know, self transcendence and others were seeing a non physical entity like a like a ghost so it's these different clusters emerged and that's how we create that that typology which is kind of like a guidebook for different sorts of spiritual experiences in the second part of the book. So tell me though why you're saying that it failed because that, I mean that sounds explanatory that sounds clean why are you saying that it failed well the thing that I really worried about is that a lot of the um this this whole typology rests really on what seems to have been perceived during the experience so it's 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 really a typology of different kinds of unseen realities um that that people seem to perceive during these experiences, um, there, it, it, the categories are not mutually exclusive, which is somewhat of another issue. People can have multiple of these categories uh, all at once. But the part that mostly bothers me is that they all 
they all involve seeing a certain or perceiving a certain kind of thing during this experience. And what I'd really like for a good typology is for it to involve uh, very abstract underlying dimensions that are, are more psychologically and even neurologically basic. Okay. So, is this yeah. So kind of what you're driving toward when, because you talk about dimensions of spiritual experience and dimensions of mind perception, unity, altered sense of time, emotional valence, overall arousal, noetic quality. Is that closer to what it is that you're talking about? Exactly. That, that would be ideal, I think, um, because I, what would be great is if this, uh, these dimensions were somewhat universal across traditions, and what you could see is different traditions maybe having higher or lower hmm. uh, levels of these various dimensions, uh, whereas as we have it now, you know, if there's a certain religion that involves some kind of entity uh, that, that we don't describe particularly well, uh, then we just won't pick up on that that experience. So I think I think our typology is is sort of too parochial, <laughs> uh, and and what I'd really love is to have these deeper underlying dimensions. Um, but basically, I just failed to deliver on that. I thought I thought I could come up with something, uh, but we list this as a future direction for uh, for the field uh, to hopefully gain some traction on. Very interesting. And I'm curious to you, what would that look like? What would it look like to arrive at the carving of nature at its joints? Would it look like, okay, now we have five discrete brain circuits and those are independent vectors and those map on to our different dimensions of spiritual experience? Like, how will you know when you come to the right answer? It's a great question. It probably won't involve brain circuits because I'll leave that to people like you who uh, understand okay. <laughs> <laughs> how to do that work much better than I do. Um, I mean, that, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, if we had a brain-based typology? Um, but, but I don't know enough to say there. I th you know, there's this movement in mental health research to move from particular diagnoses, particular disorders from... Uh, research domain criteria or RDOC. And so seeing uh, these these more underlying dimensions, uh, like so for example, negative mood that shows up in depression, anxiety disorders, compulsive disorders, psychotic disorders. So it's it's not uh, it's not a distinctive feature. It's rather this this continuous distribution that can occur. Uh, to more or less of an extent across these, as we call them now, our, our diagnoses. Um, and so rather than talking about things like like depression and anxiety, which is why what I, more so what we have is currently the middle section of, of the book, our typology, it'd be great to move towards these underlying dimensions like mood, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is possible. Again, I failed to deliver on this. Uh, and be, the, the problem is you get so abstract so quickly mm -hmm. um and you know when when you ask someone you know did you feel the presence of god around you um people get that even if they're an atheist they understand what you mean by that and they may interpret it as their a projection of their brain but they still get what you mean mm -hmm. whereas when you start to talk in these very abstract ways like a did you uh, perceive 
non diffuse non-physical mind in your immediate <laughs> surroundings people are like what are you talking about <laughs> i mean if you're an academic you kind of think yeah sure that makes sense but if you're if you're most you know most of us we think that that doesn't really sound like something that makes sense it sounds like a bunch of jargon hmm. so hmm. that's the concern that's it's, the trade-off really it you know it occurs to me that so often whether it's a psychological approach, a neuroscientific approach, the, the questions about spiritual experience are often framed in some formulation of why is it that people have these types of experiences? And there's a baked in set of assumptions here that that's abnormal or exceptional or breakthrough. And I'm curious what your thoughts would be about flipping the paradigm and asking almost the exact inverse of the question of, why is it that some people do not have spiritual experiences? What would be gained? What would be lost? What would be the risks, the benefits of flipping the paradigm for the question? That's really interesting. It reminds me of work done by uh, David Sloan Wilson, in Darwin's Cathedral, and Jonathan Haidt, uh, which is this evolutionary argument that focuses on, on groups. And it basically says groups that had more people who had these experiences, which they describe as these all for one, one for all moments, mm -hmm. uh, which is definitely a, a big outcome of, of, of all of these kinds of spiritual experiences. People often feel this outpouring of altruism. Like in my example, when I said I wanted to call all my friends and family and say I love them and I do anything for them. Uh, you can imagine how groups that had more people having these experiences would be more cooperative uh, overall and thus more successful. Um, and so, yeah, you can imagine this view, almost like an evolutionary fitness type view of there are some people who have these advantageous uh, experiences, uh, for most of them, at least they're advantageous, uh, not always. Uh, and and that these are are helpful uh, for the furtherance of human survival, <laughs> and mm -hmm. that the real question is why aren't why isn't everyone having these experiences? Mm -hmm. uh, that's very interesting. I like that. I like that flip. I don't have anything else to say other than okay, that. Fair okay, fair enough. Okay, I'll say too that uh, speaking of just flips, at first when you said that you were going to identify two psychologists who you would like to critique for their approaches. I thought you were going to talk about contemporary psychologists. I was like, oh, it's about to get real, but okay. Freud oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always feel a little bad critiquing Jung because I, I I love reading Jung. It's just, I, I disagree with, um, I think he lacks the the humility and and evidence uh, groundedness of, of James, but there's a lot to learn from, from Freud and Jung. But I think they both got got a lot of the approach to spiritual experience quite wrong. My, so that does segue into my final question for you here. And this is a theoretical question that sets the stage for the big reveal of James's personal beliefs. So you discuss in the book the way in which James is extrapolating metaphysical evidence from pragmatic data. And it's caricatured by, I think, critics who are uncharitable as James merely saying, if it makes you happy, then it must be true. And so I'm wondering if, if first you can articulate with a little bit more of a sophisticated set of criteria, 
what it is that James is actually saying about the relationships between pragmatic observation and metaphysical extrapolation, and then share with us what is it exactly that James himself espouses his personal beliefs. Yeah, okay, great. So the big reveal. Um, so just to rephrase the question, I would say something like, what does James say about the issue of are these experiences real uh, in the metaphysical sense? Are they showing us something about the the, the metaphysical nature of reality? Is a spiritual experience providing evidence of a spiritual dimension to reality? So he provides two conclusions. The first is his what he calls his professional conclusion. His professional conclusion is he says something like, in all sad sincerity, we must admit to the fact that none of these experiences, these all of these hundreds of experiences we've discussed about provide an iota, an iota of evidence uh, for the infinitist belief is what he calls it. But this is like a supernatural belief. So he basically says, if 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 we're and I know uh, Michael, you and I uh, disagree with this, so we could we could talk about it. But but he basically says, um, if we're if we're going to be scientists about it, we simply can't prove or disprove uh, the supernatural realms' existence or non-existence. So he he really doubles down on this methodological agnosticism that he's really maintained throughout the whole book. So that's his professional conclusion. I find that incredibly uh, admirable in its humility. There's a lot of power in the in the phrase "I don't know," <laughs> um, especially when it comes from an expert. Uh, but then he gives his personal conclusion. This is quite different and really surprising to me. And most most readers, uh, you know, comes right at the end of the book. And he basically it, it just this comes from his philosophy of pragmatism, and he says there's this concept of overbeliefs. And an overbelief is, James says, if you really don't know something, and if you have no way of knowing it, then you have the right to choose what you believe on the basis of its benefits to you and to others. And so he says that he can't know whether these experiences point to some other um, more, this other you know, supernatural or spiritual dimension. But he says that believing that they do uh, makes him more sane uh, and and true, and and essentially help him uh, to deal with life. And so, on that basis, he he himself uh, makes the leap of faith, which which apparently is James's phrase that he coined. <laughs> it's not Kierkegaard. Uh, he makes the leap of faith, and he chooses on the basis of this idea of, of this concept of overbeliefs to believe that these experiences point to another uh, spiritual realm of existence. Uh, and, and he even goes further. He says some people have this view of of God. Um, you know, there's there's the refined supernaturalists, and then there's uh, who believe in the kind of um, uh, this this notion of the ultimate, who are kind of like deists who believe in like Spinoza's God, like God is just nature. And then there's uh, the crasser uh, supernaturalist, I think he says. And he says, I'm in the latter, latter category. <laughs> so he chooses to believe in a more interventionist uh, kind of, of God on the basis of the benefits of that belief to his, his life. Uh, and so this was controversial. I mean, um, 
James, you know, Bertrand Russell said, everything is good about the varieties except the conclusion. Uh, <laughs> so, so Bertrand Russell really didn't like James's his view. Um, but I find it very bold uh, and, and interesting that that James put that uh, at the end of the book. Beautiful, wonderful summary. Again, just a fantastic contribution here to this multidisciplinary discourse between science and spirituality, David. Um, with that, I think that Charlie's going to rejoin us here to help curate some questions from the virtual audience. Thank you, Michael. Well, I've really been enjoying just listening to you two talk. Um, we have a couple questions in the Q&A function and also somebody dropped, uh, people have been dropping comments into the chat function. So I'm actually going to start with one in the chat function um, from Kim Frumpkin. Um, that's not visible to uh, every, uh, everyone else. So I'm going to read it out loud. David, it, uh, here's what it says. In the context of psychedelics generating spiritual experiences, how would you respond to Swami Akilananda, who said, quote, some thinkers conclude that a kind of mystical state can be produced by nitrous oxide and other drugs, but the effect of the state produced proves that it's not a mystical experience because there's no change in the personality. Um, so the no change in the personality is somehow the thing that disqualifies it as a mystical experience, or I suppose a change in quality, a personality would qualify it as mystical. And uh, that comes from um, the Swami's article, Mysticism and Altruism from 1948. Interesting. So I, I tried to do, to drive by definitional work pretty quickly in this talk, um, but but ultimately these topics require a substantial amount of, of definitional work. Um, and so here's a reason why, right, in this question, I think this person uh, has a definition of mystical experience that include that isn't based on uh the self-reported subjective features of the state but is rather uh inclusive of certain outcomes associated with the state so it sounds like for this for this person um that in order to have a mystical experience it needs to fulfill certain subjective uh criteria as well as outcome criteria uh, so, in other words, for it to be called mystical, it has to have good effects. Mm -hmm. I think that there are problems with including the outcome in the definition itself. Hmm. Um, because then what do you call an experience that has a lot of the subjective, shared subjective features of the state itself, but results in very a very different outcome? Um, so say you know, one person has a feeling of absolute connectedness and unity and benefits from it tremendously uh, and, it, and it ends up making them more altruistic. But what do you call a state that is similarly described, you know, is a unitive connective experience, but results in a, a negative outcome, a feeling of fear and confusion that, that requires therapeutic assistance? Hmm. Um, would that would that state itself be something totally different or is it the case that the same state can have different outcomes depending on one's uh framework for understanding it uh and processing it and, and integrating it mm -hmm. 
So I tend to, to choose definitions uh, that are more state-based so that we can look at the outcomes, the whole spectrum uh, of outcomes, uh, good, bad, ugly, positively transformational, uh, et cetera. Mm. And there's another dimension of that question, which is interesting, and it has to do with the nitrous oxide or, or drugs uh, causing. So, so James was very, very clear on this. He said what we should really care about, um, we, we shouldn't care so much about the origins in judging the value of a state. We should judge uh, the value of it now, not definition now, but ju judging the value based on the outcomes. Uh, and so he said, you know, we, we wouldn't deny uh, the, how moving and beautiful a Beethoven symphony is uh, just because we know that the composer was, was depressed uh, during its composition. And in the same way, someone may have, um, like uh, St. Paul um, on the road to Damascus, could have a, a very transformative experience from something that we know also has, uh, you know, this was a seizure, right? This, we, I think it's widely kind of acknowledged that St. Paul's vision on the road to Damascus was both a seizure and a dramatically transformative spiritual experience. And I think James would say, you know, it doesn't matter that this was a seizure. This, what matters is that this was a dramatically transformative experience for, for that individual. Uh, so the, the first chapter of James's Varieties of Religious Experience is called Neurology and Religion. Uh, and it goes really, really deep into this uh, and goes through a number of really well-known saints who had uh, pretty obvious uh, mental disorders. Uh, and he says to, to um, deny the value of these experiences based on some of the features of their origins uh, is, not, is nonsensical. And so when he would look at something like nitrous oxide, uh, he would say, well, it, that might be the proximate cause of the state, but, but really we need to look to the impact of the experience to judge its value. Hmm. Yeah, I hear actually, David, just a little bit of a contradiction in the two sequences there. And I, I don't think that was your intention. And so if we can just briefly tease those out, because I hear you in the first sequence saying that we should not factor in the outcomes of transformation to the qualification of an experience is authentic or not. And then secondarily here talking about James and his focus on the fruits of an experience. And so I wonder if you can just speak a little bit to that. Yeah, so the so in the first case, how we define an experience uh, need not be uh, inclusive of, of outcomes. Um, and the second point is when we think about the value of an experience, uh, we might we might look to outcomes rather than origins. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Um, David, I, I want to ask you a question of my own um, based on something you just said. So one of the things that has always struck me and since I found myself rather surprisingly now in these conversations around psychedelics and the and and religion, that intersection, is the I, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but there's a pretty widespread um, resistance among folks, uh, some folks about thinking about psychedelics as inducing um, mystical experience, um, especially I think people uh, in, from Christian circles. And it's always struck me as somewhat um, odd, and I want to pose this actually to both of you, um, Michael as well. Um, you know, 
in the Christian archive has plenty of um, ample evidence of experiences induced by all kinds of practices, um, prayer, uh, sleep deprivation, uh, food deprivation, just to name some of the, the, um, the classic uh, singing of Psalms. These are some that are close to my own heart with um, Egyptian monasticism. It always strikes me as strange as why should we think that depriving oneself of something like food would um, induce a uh, uh, could induce a legitimate spiritual experience, but if we in if we um, ingest something that is somehow um, illegitimate. And I've wondered whether the worry about ingesting something is um, is troublesome precisely because of the Eucharist. <laughs> There's a sense in which only one thing that you can ingest should transform you. You can do all kinds of other bodily exercises, but if you're going to put something in your, uh, if you're going to eat or drink something that would transform you, it should be the Eucharist. And so anything that might do that is kind of rendered illegitimate by virtue of its um, stepping into the space of the Eucharist. I'm wondering if you find that even remotely um, compelling as an explanation for Christian worries about psychedelics. David, do you want me to go or do you want to go first? Mine will be really brief and I suspect you have a better answer, Michael. So, uh, so I'll <laughs> say it in a few words. Um, yeah, what I would say is, is interesting is this historical background of um, people uh, being outraged by these practices themselves as well, which is, is strange for us, I think, to consider. But these practices like fasting uh, and extensive prayer were themselves viewed with suspicion uh, at various times, uh, at, you know, and, and really, I guess, spontaneous being the only uh, true uh, form of, of spiritual experience, whereas if you're, you know, chasing it with with one of these practices that that uh, that that's inauthentic. I think mm. we've moved on a little bit from that. Um, but but psychedelics uh, appear to be uh, the brunt of, of that attitude. Currently, I, I suspect once people get used to it, that that attitude won't last. Um, but but again, I think Michael probably has a much better response for this one. Uh, a longer, I don't know if better, but a longer response. I think that there's at least two dimensions in which we can test that hypothesis, Charlie. One is to look within Christendom and to correlate the degree to which a particular faith tradition has a high veneration for the Eucharist. And then to see if there is an association with an increased or decreased anxiety surrounding psychedelics. Because with this working hypothesis, you would predict that the higher that the reverence is given to the Eucharist sacramentally, that the higher the anxiety around psychedelics would be for some kind of authenticity of mystical experience and induction. And then a second dimension of analysis would be to look across different traditions Islamic traditions, Jewish traditions, et cetera, to see if there is comparable anxiety or if there is really something uniquely elevated about Christian anxiety. But I, if we were to run that experiment, my wager is that perhaps there would be some correlation there, but that there would be perhaps a larger explanatory value to the anxieties about intoxicated states generally. I think that already with spiritual rapture, there is such a patently intoxicating effect about it, that this delicate dance between 
ecstatic transformation versus delusion is so difficult to to really finally walk and to discern and so my my speculation is that it's more generally an anxiety about any type of intoxicant that would compromise the ability for discernment mm. and by intoxicant michael do you mean um specifically intoxicant or anything that might a, a catalyst for an altered state yep so a catalyst for an altered state mm -hmm. yeah okay yeah um because of course you know so many of these practices and i think david's right there's deep worries about these practices across the board whether you're ingesting something or not um these these there are practices like sleep deprivation we know obviously induces altered states we all know it when we get too tired but if you have a if you have a cultivated practice of sleep deprivation i think that can reliably bring on altered states are people as anxious about that as a technique for inducing altered states as they are about um techniques that involve ingesting something and if so why and i don't understand i'm not sure i know the answer to that but i love i love the way you think because i think i just put this out as a hypothesis and you're like here's how we would here's how we would structure an experiment to answer that question <laughs> which is why you're a scientist and i'm not um well we have come to our time uh, it's after seven and i want to thank um I want to thank especially David and Michael for uh, leading us through um, the, a really wonderful, wide-ranging conversation. I want to thank you, David and Andrew, in his absence, for writing this book. Um, I have many more questions, but we simply don't have time to pursue them now. And I want to thank the audience for uh, uh, staying with us. In fact, growing at a particular time, the audience surged late in the uh, game. I don't know what what to, what explains that, but um, and for some of the questions uh, that are in the Q and A, which, as I said before, we will pass on to David and Michael. So, <laughs> excuse me. Um, uh, please again be on the lookout for our next set of events. Sign up for our newsletter. And in the meantime, um, once again, David, Michael, thank you so very much and uh, good evening. Thank you, Charlie, and thanks all. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.